Good morning. Glad you all paddled here today. Um, we're in Genesis today, and I should go to that passage about the rainbow, just so we know that there will be an end to this rain. Um, but we're not going to do that. This whole fall typically is what we call the season of foundations, and in a four-year cycle, we kind of rotate through the Old Testament. Uh, this year, had we been doing that rigidly, we would have stayed in Genesis the whole time. But we did our kind of Journey of the Soul series, and now we have two weeks before Advent. So I, I'm going to cover what? No, I'm not going to cover Genesis. I'm going to preach in Genesis two weeks, and then we go into Advent. There's so much in Genesis. I wish, but in four years, we'll come back. If I'm still around, you're still around, we'll be here um, working through Genesis in four years. But today uh, and next week, what I want to do is address the biggest existential question of all. And that is, why are we here? That's it. Two weeks, and we'll nail that one, move on to the rest of life, right? (laughs) Now, you may not consciously ask this question uh, every day, but, but the bottom line is our whole life seems directed toward finding the answer to this in some way. We want our lives to count. We want to have and to fulfill a purpose. And this why, whether we realize it or not, kind of everything that we do. And if we want to understand the why, we need to go back. You know, superheroes have an origin story. How did they get their superpowers? And, and, it, and it ends when you learn their origin story, you begin to understand why they are the way they are, why they're here, what they're supposed to do. Well, we have an origin story, too, that started at the very beginning in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now, I asked you last week, you actually I said, hey, how, how do I do this? Or you wanted clarification. So I know some of you have read Genesis 1 and 2 throughout the week. Um, but, but I'm going to skip through. I'm going to kind of hop through Genesis 1 because it's a lot of text. If I read both the stories, I'm going to read most of Genesis 2. Uh, and, and Well, all of Genesis 2, end of Genesis 1. But if you... And, and can I just tell you something? If you've got your Bible on a phone or a Bible in front of you, I would love it if you follow along. Um, I I realize I'm reading it, I'm telling you the story, you don't have to look at it, but I also know enough about human beings to know the more senses we involve when we're learning and and trying to take something in, the better it is. So if you can hear and see it at the same time, I think it's great. But like I say, I'm going to read just the first part of Genesis 1, and then I'm going to kind of hop you through Genesis 1, and then at verse 26, I'll pick up and start reading again. It says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then we have this kind of six-day cycle that, that you know about, and God said, let there be light on day one, right? And there was light, and there was darkness. And day two, let there be a vault between the, the waters to separate water from water, and God made the water above and below, separated it. And, and then he gathered it in one place in day two and, and called, or, and, and that was the second day. He gathered it in one place in day three, and you have land. The vegetation starts to show up. That's the third day. The fourth day, let there be lights in the sky, the sun and the moon. Now, he doesn't call it the sun and the moon. I'm going to talk to you why about that in a minute, but that was the fourth day. The fifth day, you have this water filling up with living creatures and birds flying. And the sixth day, you have all the animals on the land, and we pick it up in verse 26 when we show up, when humanity shows up. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, 
in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. All you vegetarians are happy now that I read that, aren't you? God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. In chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array, and by the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work, and then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Then, verse 4 of chapter 2, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you, for it, when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make your helper suitable for him. Now the Lord had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, what we've just done, and what I asked you to do over the last couple weeks, is to spend time reading the creation stories, plural. And that's right, plural. We may not realize this, but when you trace the accounts of creation in the Bible, there are more than one. There are multiple. Many places in Scripture that that reference and tell the story, the account of the creation of the world. We've just read two of them, Genesis 1 for the most, and, and the first part of 2, and then the rest of Genesis 2. These are two accounts 
of creation. You also see it in Job 38 to 41, where God's, Job's like, stand up, I'm going to question you. And God says, sit down, I'm going to tell you, where were you when I did all this? Right? Psalm 104 is another account of creation. Tells, tells how it all played out. Proverbs 8, 22 to 31, wisdom is personified as a woman, and she says, I was there, and she describes the story of creation. John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. It's a shortened version, but it's an account of creation. And there are others all throughout Scripture. In fact, if some, some theologians who spend lots of time counting this kind of thing, well, they'll even add in the references to the old creation in relation to the new creation. And people have said there are as many as 21 different creation accounts in the Bible. Now, we don't often think of that. We usually just think of Genesis. And the truth is, me, and I'm just speaking for myself, but maybe you too, when we think of creation, we think of Genesis 1 as the creation account. But as you read them all, and I mean, we are people of the book. We believe in the text, right? We want to read the text of Scripture and know it. As you read them all, and as you lay them side by side, you have to begin to realize the challenges that they present. There are some challenges in these multiple accounts of creation, and that's where I want to be honest and direct, because we don't just read Genesis 1. We read the whole Bible. We believe it's the Word of God. And it's the standard by which we evaluate everything. But sometimes, because our focus on the text can make us uncomfortable, we will choose certain ways to look at the text and ignore other ways. Lots of challenges that come when we honestly read the text. Now, this is going to be a little unsettling here for a few minutes for you, okay? Just go with me. <laughs> Trust me just a little bit. You don't have to agree with me, but let's walk down this path. For example, in, in chapter 1, Genesis 1, 3 says, let there be light. But, but on day 4, Genesis 1, 14, God creates the sun and the moon. Now, that, that's not impossible. God can do whatever God wants, but but why is it like that? Genesis 2.4 says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. But when I got there, I'm like, I just read the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. What do you mean that this is the account? Especially when I lay them side by side. Because it's not just a restating of chapter 1. They open with different settings. In chapter 1, it's, it's formless and void and spirits hovering over the, 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 the waters. But in chapter 2, when it opens... It's, 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 uh, it's the earth is this kind of dry wilderness with a few springs that come up to water it. It's, it's, it seems to be a different picture in Genesis 2.5 and 2.6 than it was in Genesis 1.9 and 1.2. And, and as you look at the creative events and you follow them, Genesis 1 has water first, then comes the land, then come the plants, then come the animals, and then finally humans, humanity, Adam is the Hebrew word male and female together. Genesis 2 starts with land, and then comes water, followed by a human, Adam, the man, who's later specified as Ish, which actually means male, and, his wife, and Eve is, is Isha, which is female. But that's way later, after even the animals and those things are done. So which is it? Which is the right one? And when I look at Psalm 104, which is the right one? When I look at, at Proverbs 8, when I look at, 
at uh, Job 38 to 41, which one actually tells the story and why don't they line up more closely? Do you feel uncomfortable? You should. I do with that. It's, it, it gets more complicated as you look at the other. And what are we? We're faithful to the text. We don't just want to focus on one. We want to read the whole book. We want to be shaped by the whole book. Now, we're going to go back and look in detail at Genesis 1 and 2. But before we do that, I want to point out what I think are two important understandings about the way we approach Genesis 1 and 2. One of the biggest challenges in reading Scripture for all of us, is that we come to it and we want it to fit what we want it to say. We want it to fit our agenda. I want it to fit the sermon I want to present. You want it to fit what you did last week to justify those. We all do that. But the scriptures say we've got to, we've got to handle them well. In, in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not, not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So we want to look at this book we've been given from God. And we want to handle it properly. We want to read it. We want to apply it correctly and with wisdom. And when we come to it with a preconceived idea, sometimes we, we, we twist it or we distort it. We try to make it work for us. And th there's a couple of understandings, these two, that I want to share with you that I think are really important. And, and I'm, I'm going to give you a disclaimer before I do that. Um, if you've been around Christianity a while, if you've read uh, the Bible and people's comments on the Bible for a while, if, if, if you've studied Genesis for a while, that's okay, Sylvia, it happens to all of us at one time or another. You're loved, somebody wants to talk to you, that's a great thing. If you've done that, you realize that there, within Christianity there are a lot of different opinions about what happened in creation. A lot of people say this is seven literal days. And that's, I, God can do that in seven literal days. I think that's definitely very possible within the realm of Scripture. That's exactly what it, like, so it seems to be what Genesis 1 spells out. But there are other people that say, now these are seven periods of time. Oh, okay. But, but they believe and they, they work from Scripture to try to get that. There are other people that say, you know, this is kind of a poetic telling of the creation story. It's, it's, it's set against the other creation stories of the other nations to show how Yahweh is very different than any God of, of, and, and how the world is his creation. Now, I, I, here's the problem for probably you today and the thing that makes it hard for me. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. I'm not going to just spend the rest of my time explaining why it's one and not the others because I think sometimes we spend so much time worrying about the how that we totally neglect the why. We spend days and days and we research and we Google and we get to, to figure out how exactly it happened when the whole point is it happened and we need to live why. Why did it happen? And so that's where we're going. And, and I want you to, as we talk about Genesis 1 and 2, I want you to entertain the idea that the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 may be less a blueprint and more like a family album. Less a blueprint and more like a family album. What do I mean by that? Let me show you. I've got a, some pictures that are going to come up of a house being built. Let's just look at them. Read if you'll pull up that first one. Here's a house in construction, right? Go to the next one. Here's somebody putting the trusses on the roof. And the next one, you move to the backyard. To build this house, you have a blueprint, right? 
That's how the guys know where to do what they want to do. That's how you know how big the rooms are. That's how you know what materials to use and how high they're supposed to be in the size, right? But now let me ask you a question. Based on those pictures, those three pictures and the blueprint, tell me this. The people in that house that live there now, what are they like? (laughs) Awesome, says Cindy. (laughs) What do they like to do? What, what are the things that they value and hold to be important? What will they sacrifice for? You can go to, I, I can give you the blueprint. Can you answer those questions from the blueprint? No. You can know how big the living room is. You can know where the fireplace is. You can know where the doors are. But you don't know anything about the people and, and, and inhabiting it. Now, that's a blueprint. Now, let me show you a family album of the people who live in that house. Here's, here's a group of them traveling in Honduras years ago, right? Uh, then they also went to Disneyland, right? Um, two of them travel with a guy named Mohammed through the desert in Jordan. That's them up on the top. They, they've, they've gone to Birch Bay, taking pictures there. Uh, sometimes they take silly pictures. That one has to go fast because one of my children said, get that one off the screen. They have Christmas, and you'll notice there's another family member, a little small white one right? Who has a little personality? (laughs) This is how he sleeps, right? Uh, There's also times of celebration, and there's a little kid in the front named Carter, right? That's kind of been adopted. He's he's pulled into that family, even though he's got his own family. We've kind of stolen him sometimes, too. And and it's not just that family. At Christmas time, there's a million of them that show up. Now, based on that family album, the people in this house, what are they like? Do you begin to know a few things about them? What do they like to do? What are the things that they hold important? What will they sacrifice for? Do you see how a blueprint and a family album answer very different questions? And often, I think we're in danger of misreading Scripture because we come to it in the wrong way. We often look at the creation accounts as if they're blueprints. And that's where the struggle comes when we try to make it fit. But, But what if God intended the creation accounts, all of them in the Bible, to be more like a family album. The people in this creation and the creator, what are they like? And what do they like to do? What are the things they value and hold important? What is the things that, what, what will the creator of this place, what will he sacrifice for? See, if we aren't careful forcing our desire for the text to be something it might not be, distorts it. Remember, we finished up 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. He, Paul, says, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things which are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own distract- destruction. Like, the, the danger is, if we come to the text looking for the wrong thing, we may distort what it's actually saying, because we're trying to get it to say what we want it to say. I'm giving you this image of blueprint and, and family album. It's taken from a, a guy named John Walton, who I've appreciated writing about Genesis. And, and, and it's to ask the question, as I've said before, what if Genesis 1 and 2 is more about the why of creation than it is the how? We're reading it looking for the details of a blueprint. And what God is trying to do is to introduce us to himself and describe the family that he is building and answer that question we've talked about, why are we here? 
I referenced it last week, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, but I want to put it on the screen this week. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, what God wanted to do, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. What is this story, what is this thing that God wants to do to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ? What if Genesis 1 and 2 is setting the stage for what God wants to do by bringing everybody together under Christ. See, if we look at the creation accounts only as blueprints, we run into some trouble because the question, if you're looking for a blueprint and you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, then you're like, why do it this way, God? Why would you do it this way? If you're trying to tell us how, why so many different accounts? Why so many different stories? Why would you do it this way? Why the, why the challenges? Why, why don't they all line up if you're trying to tell us how? Well, maybe the unsettling nature of the text that makes us uncomfortable when it doesn't line up, maybe that's good for us. Maybe it's forcing us to say, maybe I'm approaching this in the wrong way. In Isaiah 55, verse 9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, God says, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Maybe the way God is thinking about Genesis 1 and 2 and the way we've traditionally approached it is not the same. Maybe he thinks about it. Maybe he's doing different things there. Maybe this uncomfortable nature of the text when we say, why did Genesis 1 and 2 look so different? And they're both the accounts. And why do you tell the story and then say, now here's the story. Which one is it? Maybe that unsettles us enough to think, maybe I'm looking at it through the wrong lenses. So let's go back to chapter 1 and 2. And, and, and there's some things that are really clear there when you read the text. In Genesis 1, it's about one God and his temple. See, in the Old Testament world, when this, when this was written, when, when, when the story of the Jews was being spread among all the other cultures, there were two underlying assumptions that people thought when they thought about the world, the cosmos, the creation. One was that there are multiple and many gods. There are lots of them. And the second was, the creation of this world, the story behind where we're living, happened because of the conflict and the interaction of these gods, multiple gods, the struggle. And what Genesis does and what demands a hearing is Genesis says, there's not multiple gods. There's one. We'll touch on this more uh, a, a little bit next week, uh, but, but there were more creation stories in the, about, in the time of the Old Testament. The Babylonians had a story called Enuma, El, en, Enuma Elish, and there were two main gods, the freshwater god and the saltwater god. Crazy Babylonians, who would ever think that, right? Um, and, and these two gods, through their interactions, multiplied and led to a series of six gods, and they all fight each other. And it's like they're fighting, you know when kids are fighting in the, in the vacant lot and the dust all gets kicked up? It's like the six gods are fighting and what comes out of that is creation. That's the Babylonian story, right? Multiple gods, fighting, conflict, boom, here's the earth. The Sumerians had a story as well, four different gods, and they didn't fight so much, but they worked together to create the earth. And there's many other stories in that culture about how the earth came to be, but they all have multiple gods. And, and then the Jews stay up and say, no, 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 no. In the beginning, God, Elohim, the strong one. In the beginning, one God. 
You know, I, I talked about the sun and the moon. If you read your text, it doesn't usually say the sun and the moon in English. It says the greater light and the lesser light. There's a reason for that. Only time those words in Hebrew are used in the Bible. Why didn't God just say the sun and the moon in the creation story? Why did he say the greater light and the lesser light? Well, because the greater light, uh, sun in Hebrew is shemesh, and it sounds like the Mesopotamian sun god shemash. And moon in Hebrew, Yarias, Mesopotamian moon god, is Yari. And see, what God is saying, even in telling the story, he didn't want people to think, okay, I created the sun god and I created the moon god. He wants to say, I created this greater light and this lesser. These aren't gods at all. There is one God, Elohim. Another key idea is that as this God creates the earth, he creates his temple. Just as in that culture there were many gods, many temples, there was a process when they set up a temple to a god. Steps that they went through that were culturally bound, kind of the, the way these things happened, the way you go about it. And, and ultimately, a lot of those temples were established in a seven-day ceremony. And during this seven-day period, several things would happen. First, first part of the ceremony would be they would talk about the form of the temple itself. Here's this room. Here's that room. Here are the walls. They would proclaim that. This is where this God is going to live in this temple, and here's what it looks like. After that, they would, they would fill the temple. They'd bring in all the furnishings. They would say, this is what goes in the temple. And then after that, they would establish the priest. They would say, this is the priest of the temple. And then at the very last day, they would step back because the God himself supposedly would enter the temple and their wording was to rest. That's the way temples were set up. Now, if you look at the flow of Genesis 1, we started reading verse 2. Now the, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. First problem in that, the earth was formless right? All the creation stories in the world started with this formless, chaotic God. And what we're going to see in, in Genesis, really, I think, uh, what, what the authors communicated, was it seven literal days, was it not? I, it could totally be. But I want you to see how they're structured, because the first three days address this problem of the earth being empty. If you can't see this well enough, can you guys see that? A little bit, yeah, okay. I can't see it there really well. The first three address this problem of the form. There's no form in, in this temple. And the second three days address the, the fact that the temple is empty. Let's, let's work it through. Day one, light and darkness. God's creating a form, but he's not really giving it a name yet, right? He, he, he does something. I've created light and I've created dark. But on day four, sun and moon. Greater light, lesser light, right? He's filling it up, verses 14 to 19. Once again, back on day two, he's forming the sea and the sky. He's, he's creating this, this place that's going to be his temple. Then you move on to day five, and there's birds and fish, verses 20 to 23. He's filling that part. Then, then day three, you see he's creating the earth. He's separating the water from the land. He's creating this land. He's formed it. And day six, he puts animals on that land, and ultimately, he puts human beings created in his image, which if you've talked about the image of God, we're going to do that in Sunday school in April. It really is this, this priestly image that we are set up to be the representation to creation of who God is. And then on day seven, he rests. Do you see the parallels there? That in this seven-day process in chapter one, 
He's, he's saying there is one God, and this, this earth is his temple. He's building his temple. Stephen preaches in Acts chapter 7. He refers to the temple in Acts 7, 48 and 50. This is what he says. The Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Creation is the story of one God in his temple. And then it closes with what develops in chapter 2. And we're going to get into this a little bit more next week. I'm just going to kind of skim over it now. But Genesis 2, is, it talks about humanity representing, rule, and relate. That's what we do. We represent, we rule, and relate. We're created in his image. The Hebrew word there is zelem. And it literally is a statue. Very often a king would conquer a new territory, and he would set up his leaders... And before he went back home to his palace, he would also raise up a, a zealum, a statue of himself, as a way to let people know who was in charge there. And that's the word that God says, let us make mankind in our zealum, so that creation can see what I'm like. So we're to represent, and then he tells Adam and Eve to rule over the, the fish of the air and the bird, the fish of the air, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Uh, boy, that's a, a good one. But, but they're to rule over it, and then they also are to relate. It says they walk with him in the cool of the day, and there's male and female in relationship with each other. Humanity relating to each other, to represent, to rule, name the animals, to do all those things, to steward the creation, and to relate to God and to each other. That's what, that, that's what Genesis 2 is telling us the story of. Does, does that answer your blueprint questions? No, it doesn't. Not really. It's frustrating if you come to it with blueprint questions. But does it answer your family album? Yes. There is one God. He's created the world as his temple, and he's put us in it to be his representative, to rule over creation and to relate to each other and to him in a way that honors and glorifies him. Now, why is this important? We have to make sure that our primary goal as we live is sharing the home story and not winning the house battle. Sharing the home story and not winning the house battle. And what I'm saying to you is Genesis 1 and 2, I think, are not so much the blueprint of the house, but the family album of the home. And, and sometimes the way we try to use Scripture actually limits us in accomplishing the mission that God has given to us. Far too often we want to win, or we want to be right, we want to be certain, we want to be proven right, correct. Instead of communicating clearly that, that one God made the whole earth as his temple and created us here to live in relationship with us. That's the home story. You know, our goal in the Christian life, Jesus said it very easily in Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the world. And very often, if we're not careful, if our goal in interacting with people is to win the house battle and get all our details correct and make sure that everybody knows our details, it hinders us in making disciples, telling the home story. Because the home story is about knowing the who 
of God. Knowing the who of God. There's the one God, the strong one, Elohim. Actually, in chapter 2, it moves on to Yahweh Elohim, is who it talks about, God. This one God. And the beautiful thing about the home story, I don't want to get into too much here, because I've got to wind up. But do you get this God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, fully complete in himself? He didn't need anything. God didn't need anything. And yet he says, let, God says, let us make man in our image. He didn't need us. He didn't need creation. And yet he wanted us. That, that's, if you can get that, that, that shapes your whole world in a different way. God didn't need us, and yet he chose to create so that we could live in relationship with him. That's the powerful family story. John 17, 3, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. We have to know the who of God. That's what we're communicating when we tell the gospel story. The blueprint might tell us all about the power of God to build. Yes, and it's true in any way he wants. I have no doubt that if God wanted to, in one millisecond, create everything, he could do that. The blueprint will tell you, this powerful God creates amazing things. But the family album, the home story, shows the power of God to love us, to live in relationship with us, to save and restore us, despite our brokenness. And as we get this home story, it also helps us see the what of creation. The creation is the temple of God. That's what it was made for, for to, to, to lead people to God. And have you ever, I mean, how many people know that sometimes when you're just out on the banks of the river and, or in our parking lot, which is the banks of the river at the moment, but sometimes you're out in nature and you just, you sense God in a real and powerful way. That only makes sense if creation was created to be his temple. If it was there to help you know who he is. Now, it's, it's limited, and, and the problem is, Genesis 3, which we're not going to spend time on, is where it's, it's gotten broken and distorted. That's what it talks about in Romans 8. The creation, this temple, waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Romans 8, 19, it starts. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. See, that's, that's, where we're, that's what we have. We have this temple that God has created, but it's broken, and it's longing for the truth to come. But the beautiful thing about it, beautiful, that's funny how I said that. The, the amazing, powerful thing is what we have right now as this broken a distorted temple of God is not the final word. Sometimes I want somebody to go back and tabulate how many times I've read Revelations 21 in a sermon because it comes up almost every week. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What's God doing? He's redoing the temple. That's what he's doing. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be 
there, God, he will wipe every tear away from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things. The broken temple has passed away. He who was seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. Do you get that? That's the story. He built his temple. He established his priests. And man, did we ever blow it. But he didn't give up. He came to restore and to renew, to rebuild the home. Creation is the place where God will live with us. It's the, the, the finalized intent of Genesis 1 and 2, seen in Revelation 21 and 22, when it's all made new, which leads us to our calling. Now, I'll give you a teaser right now, and then we'll, we'll dig into it next week. Living into the why of us. Why are we here? It says we're created in the image of God to represent, to rule, and to relate. We're going to skip to Genesis 12 next week and kind of hone in on that. And like I say, if you want to hear more about the image of God, you can come in April to the adult Sunday school class because Jesus comes and he becomes the prototype for that image to be renewed. It says in, uh, in Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, we were created in the image of God. Our sin distorted that. But here Jesus comes to put the image out there. The Zalim is back. And now God's process for us is to be conformed to that image, to be made new. We'll get more into the why next week, but let me, let me just close by saying this. The most effective thing you can do, I think, to fulfill your calling is not to spend all your time trying to win the argument about how of creation. But to begin to say, God, help me live out the why. Help me to live as your image in your temple as things are being made new, to reflect Jesus to a world that needs to be welcomed into the family of God. And like I say, we'll get into that more next week. Let's, let's pray. God, there's a lot in this text, and I'm sure there's a lot of questions in our minds. Um, I just want to come back to that where you say, this is eternal life, to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. However we shake through these questions and these texts, help our goal to be to know you, to know Jesus, to be filled with the Spirit, to, to live in a relationship with the Trinity in a way that leads to Revelation 21 and 22. Change us, God. Give us the freedom to live as your image here, to reflect you to the world around us. And God, help us to work as we seek to renew and restore your temple in anticipation of the day when you will come and make all things new, including us. We long for that day. May that be the story that we tell as we seek to bring people into a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just as we close, let me, let me just be really clear, because <laughs> I may have unsettled some of you as I've talked about creation and scripture. I want you to know, uh, this book, I believe, is, is unbelievably true beyond anything else. It is the word of God. I just think it's written more to tell us how to know God than it is to make sure we get all our facts in line. Because what I see when we get all our facts in line is we become arrogant and prideful and we think we're right about every single thing. And then, and then we don't reflect Jesus very well when we do that. If we can look at the text and say, I don't get it all, but
but it's pointing me to God. It's pointing, I see that in Jesus, and it changes my life and, and gives me a gospel story about why I'm actually here. If we can begin to live that out, that, that, that's what's going to, as we point people through our lives to Jesus, that's what's going to bring us to that day when he returns and all is made new. Amen.